Hello and welcome to the Russian Way of War, uh, part six, um, here at the Adjutant's Lounge. Today I am joined by Dr. Philip Budd. Um, hello, Dr. Blood. Hello, Ben. Um, uh, we, uh, today's guest is Dustin. Um, hello, I, I Dustin. Hello, Dustin. Um, Hi, Ben. I won't, I won't tell you any, any more personal details. Dustin is a lawyer with... Um, a great deal of um, expertise in a range of fields, including um, the laws. What what would be the sort of I suppose poor what, the poor way of wording it, the laws of war, which will form today's discussion. Um, so Hello, Justin, AC laws of armed conflict. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Um, nice to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on. Now, today's format is going to be run by Phil, because the the, the conversations, uh, there'll be comments from me as always, uh, but the, Phil has got a, quite a few very, very good questions and points that he'd like to put across to Dustin. So Dustin will be sort of uh, answering these as we go. Um, if we don't get time to finish, this will be a short one because it's a very heavy topic. There may well be a part two. All right. So, chaps, floor is yours. OK, so... Let's just start with a general question because um, we've discussed this in a previous podcast and I'd just like to ask Dustin for his interpretation or his view of my notion of something called mechanised warfare, uh, mechanised genocide. I like it. You know, you, you know I like it. I think the Russians are waging a war of uh, genocide. Uh, it's clear from what Putin says, or it's clear from his propagandists that they're engaging in genocide against the Ukraine, Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian nationhood, the Ukrainian state. Uh, and they're doing it with tanks and artillery. Hopefully they won't go to uh, nuclear weapons or chemical weapons. But you can have genocide with artillery. Genocide doesn't need a uh, oven as in Auschwitz. You can, doesn't matter if you're uh, napalmed or killed by a hyperbaric uh, shell, you're still dead. If you're killed by, if you're killed because you're Ukrainian, you're getting genocided. So my second part of this question, just to um, just clarify what we're talking about. My way of thinking is the civilian in the path of war has gone from being collateral damage to genocidal damage. So, in other words, as the war progresses from the very well, from the very outset until the way the war progresses, the civilian is the target more so than the soldiery. Yeah, the aim of war of this war is genocide with intent to destroy. So, if we've got if we've got an offensive armed force 
which is driving forward with the sole purpose of destroying um, civilians and 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 um, what we would call innocents, those people who do not have guns or, or carry weapons or wear uniforms. You can commit genocide on a, on a soldier. No, I, I understand that, but let me just continue. If you if you're attacking in a way that your your primary purpose is to destroy civilians, then the way you gauge and make and assess performance is different from conventional warfare. Do you agree? Yes. So what are the performance measures in genocide when you're using conventional forces? Is it how many people you kill? Or is it running through the five points of genocide so that you're not only eradicating population, but you're also eradicating culture, uh, society, and you're causing incredible psychological pain on the opponent such that it can never ever be going back you you yeah that that's a that i know that's the last thing i'd want to get to but it's a chicken and egg situation i'm asking you this is war that you can never go back from the, there can be no reconciliation after this because of the nature of the war that's been um, prosecuted but at the same time there's the problem of how we cope with and how we comprehend what genocide in conventional terms means when we're looking at assessing how a military force works. Do you, do you see the it's two sides of the same coin if you if you if you if I make yeah. myself clear. Yeah and uh, Ben will link this in uh, notes to this uh, podcast. Uh, we've got that article from a major uh, Russian propagandist <coughs> writing on uh, Novosti and and he writes this guy is called uh, Timothy Sergetsev, and he makes it clear that this is a war of annihilation. The Banderite elites must be eliminated. Their re-education is impossible. Denazification can only be conducted by the winner. Those Nazis who took up arms must be destroyed on the battlefield. We've got, we've got genocide as the war aim. <clears throat> okay. Um, but how does an army that's fighting as a genocidal annihilation force, assess itself. See, what I'm driving to here is... There's the knights in shining armor and uh, heroes and uh, and, uh, fighting Nazis. Yeah, but let's address it in the context of the way the Western war people want to address this, which is, you know, the the Russians are losing tanks, they're losing troops, they're all the rest of it. Mm If the Russians are not fighting an ordinary conventional war, then their results and, and their, their assessment of performance 
is going to be out of sync with the way the Western warriors see the way the war's progressing. Do you see what I'm saying? That it, 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 yeah, and you're, and, you're, and you're correct on that because uh, we've got Western analysts uh, counting uh, tanks destroyed. Uh, tanks destroyed doesn't uh, matter much for the Russians if they've destroyed Azov, they've leveled uh, Mariupol, and they're occupying uh, the whole or half of Ukraine, they've won. doesn't matter, they can build more tanks. So what interests me here is, if you remember Vukovina in, in, um, and, and Srebrenica in Yugoslav, former Yugoslavia, when, city, when those cities were pounded into, into dead cities, and all that heavyweight artillery and, and shell fire was bombed onto those cities. The armies then withdrew, withdrew after they'd caused the damage. Now in Kiev, the Russians did much the same to municipalities and then withdraw, leaving that mess behind. And I, <clears throat> and I know I put together the idea of an anaconda plant with different lodgements um, across a 320 kilometer front line. Um, it was very easy to, for people to suggest that the Russians were retreating and had failed. But in this war, had they failed? Had they in fact left the terror for everybody to see? That that's actually the example of what's coming so you can have a flavor and meanwhile, down in the south and the southeast, you continue with the pounding and the destruction of Mariupol. And, and I believe in the last 48 hours, they've taken somewhere in the region of 30 or 40 towns and villages. They can do that and just continue with a relentless pounding of civilian communities and civilian municipalities. Is that, is that might be the way we should be reading this? Yes, and I'm going to say additionally that uh, they're not only engaging in mass destruction uh, to uh, scare Ukrainians into submission, to terrorize them, to get them to stop fighting, but the mass destruction is a war aim in itself. If they've leveled a village and killed all the men, and chickens there, and dogs. That's what they're intending to do. They're not. They're not doing it to scare the inhabitants of Kiev, 50 kilometers away. They're doing it because they want to kill all the men of fighting age, and kill all the chickens and dogs. Well, of course, the easiest thing to occupy is a place where there's nobody. So there's, a, there's, there's an additional benefit here. This is why I think it's more of a security warfare scenario um, than a conventional military exercise. Because if you're, if you're clearly clear, clearing whole areas of landmass, you don't need to police them very much. I mean, I, I know there's somebody from one of these esteemed associations suggesting that you'll need a million people to occupy and police Ukraine if it's captured. Yeah, I, you know my thoughts on that. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, well, I just, 
I just want to put it on record that I think it's a whole load of nonsense because, you know, the Germans could occupy a, a, an area as much as 500,000 500, hectares, 116,000 hectares with a battalion of troops, which is in those days 286 men. How many soldiers do you need to uh, to watch over uh, a civilian population? What's it, one to 500 when you're using Nazi methods? Uh, you can get it up to one, one to a thousand, one, one to a thousand, to fifteen hundred, to two thousand. In fact, you could have one soldier. One soldier we know of um, pretty much ran a whole town on his own. Um, and you've got, and if you've got advanced uh, tech, you've got uh, smartphones, you've got uh, face recognition, you've got cameras, you've got, you can do, you can do things a lot more efficiently than the Gestapo did. I think if you applied the 1984 concept of social control over and above um, Nazi style, I'm not going to go down Bandemikampfen, but Sikkerheitskrieg, security warfare, where you are, um, where the camp, uh, the town commandant runs the city. I mean, you, in some villages, there could be as many as 2,000 workers and two Germans. And that's that colonial scenario um, where the German in the German colonies, you would have maybe one or two guys running a whole a whole region. And the same with the Belgians in the Congo. They would have maybe two administrators and, an, and a sergeant running vast areas. And as somebody pointed out to me, it wasn't it wasn't the Belgians that were cutting the hands off the children for, for failing to collect the rubber. It was their own people. And and of course, in the Ukraine, we had that scenario. That scenario has happened before where collaboration with, with um, an occupying power um, was exploited for um, for the benefits of one of the of the occupier, simply because there were different tribal differences between certain groups. And we know that was a strong scenario point. in Yugoslavia. And I, I think it's in, remarkable how much um, collaboration and denunciation is ignored from people who think about occupation planning. Uh, I mean, this guy had come up with a million. Yeah, if you, if, 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 if you, if you, yeah, and you're gonna, you're gonna need that if you're dealing with Pashtuns and you're got uh, not using terror tactics. And you're using and you're trying to stick to Geneva conventions and not commit war crimes. So well, you're going to need to, every ten one soldier for 25. Yeah, well, you, well, every 10 soldiers in the in the Western method, every 10th soldier is a JAG officer, isn't he? Saying, no, you can't do this and no, you can't do that. Whereas that's not going to apply to a police state, authoritarian, militarized um, dictatorship. Um, which will have collaborators and and people are going to collaborate and I'm sure a new Ukrainian listening to this won't appreciate me saying that Ukrainians will collaborate there will be and they don't have to be particularly awful and nasty people to become a uh, collaborator to become a security uh, operative uh, well, I think that I think the interesting thing about what the Russians have done by bringing in mercenaries, 
uh, from the you know from um, so, um, Syria and places. You, you impose a psychological control over the local population by having people march the streets and patrol the streets. But you, you don't even have to bring in the Syrians. You don't Sorry? have to. You don't even have to bring in the Syrians. If you're occupying, and this is already occurring from what we can see, if you're occupying part of Ukraine, then you go to all the men between 1860 left there, say, well, you're going to join the Donetsk or Luhansk uh, people's uh, militia. And if you don't, that means you're a Nazi. And there's a nice little trench there waiting for you. I mean, yeah, I find this, I find it fascinating that we've actually got to a situation where the word denazification has um, become so prominent. Yeah, it's terrifying. When the Red Army and the NKVD um, conducted denazification in the eastern area of Germany after the Second World War, yeah, there was there was a hunt for war criminals. Um, but their attitude towards denazification wasn't the same as the British and the Americans. The British and the Americans were giving people personal shines, you know, personal uh, shine, which was like a whitewashed certificate. Um, the Russians were not so nice. They they made people do hard labour and, and suffer all kinds of problems. And of course, they kept the German POWs till the mid-1950s. My big concern here with this war is will the POWs ever, ever come out of the Russian system? Will the people who've been deported from Mariupol and other towns ever get back to the West? And and where is the stop line for the destruction? This you know this brings us back this brings us back to my original question which is if the performance is to destroy then it, this this process doesn't stop at the Dnieper river it, it it goes right the way up to Lviv doesn't it yeah and then we've got the baltics poland and moldavia to denazify Obviously, Ukrainians will all be Russians under Russian op- occupation. You can, they're stating that quite clearly in this uh, in this call for genocide from Mr. Yeah, but that, dial, that, dial that back just a second, Dustin, and think about what's going to happen to at least 7 million, if not more, refugees in Western Europe. What they, happens to they them? Will be, well, they're going to be the Banderites are going to be eliminated, and the rest will be denazified, which will be. But what about the refugees in Poland and Germany today? Well, uh, they're Nazis, obviously. Oh, obviously. Well, I can understand why you, why you, why the Russians would come to that conclusion. My, my interest is. If they never have a home to go to, are they going to become the next Israelites, if you like? Is that, is that the way we're going? They'll become the next Poles. Because the Israelites had two uh, had a two thousand year gap between 
the Romans sending them off. Okay, Poland. And, and they, they pick, we, we do have a direct analogue in history. Poland, when it was occupied by Germany, or Prussia, sorry, Prussia, Austria, and uh, Russia, some Poles stayed, a lot of Poles left. So those those Ukrainians who have become refugees uh, in Poland and the rest of Europe, I assume they'll keep the <coughs> Ukrainian identity. There's enough of them. They won't forget that they're Ukrainian. They won't integrate, assimilate so that they disappear. They keep the flame of Ukrainian state, statehood alive. But the Polish uprising in the 19th century. Um, Two of them. I'm, I'm thinking about the one, I think it was the 1830s, 1831. Yeah. I, as I recall, the, the Tsars were not that horrible, were they? I thought, I thought uh, they... They, they, I think they recognised that there was a Polish identity, that there was the Pale of Settlement where the Jewish communities were allowed to settle. But I don't, I never got the impression. Apart, I'm not talking about the programs now. I'm talking about during the revolution. I don't remember the the Russians being extremely um, genocidal in dealing with the Polish uprisings. What I'm trying to get to is. If anything happens like that with the Ukrainians within an occupied zone, they're immediately within a genocidal con war, as we've now agreed is this war as, as this war what it is. Any any kind of attempt to achieve independence is going to be received um, very badly, and it's going to resort to more genocide. Do you see what? I, see, mm-hmm. I, Putin is now. He, you set a situation where there's no other way out, is there? There's only death. Wouldn't I think so. I think so. I think so. I mean, that again, returning to Sergeyev, you haven't seen anything like this, even from Nazis. There's, there's no, there's no written statement saying, being this clear about what they plan to do with Jews and Slavs from the Nazis, except maybe the censored bits of uh, Mein Kampf. But yeah, they want, they, want to, they want to occupy and they want to denazify and they want to completely destroy Ukraine. This is this is this is equivalent of Goebbels coming out, not with his uh, sports pilots uh, speech, uh, where he's he sort of mentioned extermination. Well, I don't want to go too much down the Nazi route because, you know, there's too many people out there trying to make World War II analogies and represent this conflict into another way. What I would rather do is say to you, pose this question to you. Hitherto, the laws of war have been directed towards war crimes and genocide that have arisen as a consequence of a conflict of one form or another. So 
Um, the, the conflict in Rwanda was caused by um, stoking up feelings between the, the two ethnic groups. The um, genocidal moments in Yugoslavia was stoked by uh, various conflicting nationalisms within the same body politic. Uh, in Grozny, war, the, the, the level of genocide was caused by pounding and bombardment. What we have now, though, is if we've got, if, if the first level of this war in terms of escalation is genocide, there's nowhere else you can go. And the problem with the laws of war as they exist at the moment, as I understand them, is there's no escalation. There's no, I mean, the mens rea, the, 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 the actual mind of the, of, the, of the culprits, the perpetrators, is, is just heinous, vile destruction, annihilation. There's, you, you can't go anywhere. Up, you, there's no other level, is there? We've kind of run through the whole of the laws of war, which are sealed in in the Geneva Convention and United Nations and all the other institutions, and we're right at the top. Can, the, the, <laughs> we've not gone through a process like the Nazis. Well, you know, we started a war crime in 1940 and we end up with Auschwitz. From day one, this is like more than Auschwitz. This is this is extreme total it's like total war but in this case total annihilation it's complicated to try and get the right phraseology to a situation I'm calling genocide is, the war aims so there's, there's no need to escalate if you're going out to if you're going out there to destroy ukraine and and ukrainians you're not you don't need to escalate no what i'm suggesting is in the past there was levels of escalation to the point where you got to the big one, like Auschwitz, right? There was various processes, hunger plans, you name it. But by the time, what, what's happened here with Putin, which is what I was trying to get to, we've gone straight at the top level. There's no, there's no working up to a point. There's no escalation in the war. He's gone straight for it from the very outset. Uh, he, can get, he, he can get worse. I mean, just he can get worse. But the benchmark that he set is so high, it's already in the realm of genocide. I'm talking about the legality now. Yeah, we, it's not just killing prisoners of war. He's gone right up to the top. I would say that he started. He started. He made a war of genocide with his speech on the 24th. So, Dustin, I'd like to ask a question. Do you think from the very beginning, from the very outset of this war, that Putin had set the military to the task of genocide? Yes, I think that's clear from um, the statements he made on the 21st of uh, February, which were quite terrifying for uh, Ukrainians. And in hindsight, they might have uh, at that point, just started mobilizing immediately, but they didn't. Uh, but his uh, speech on TV on the 24th in the morning, that made it clear that this is a war of um, genocide. Mm. Uh, it's going to, this speech is going to be uh, used against Putin 
if he ever ends up at The Hague. Uh, of course, it's a rambling nonsense. Uh, because as he's getting older, he's getting more senile, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And um, he's blaming the West, going, what about Syria? What about Yugoslavia? But then he cuts to the point that um, Russians in Ukraine, millions of them, are suffering genocide. It is necessary to immediately stop this nightmare. The genocide against the millions of people living in there who rely only on Russia, only on us. And then he goes into uh, saying that uh, he's going to recognize Luhansk and uh, Donetsk. And he's launching a special military operation to protect the people who have been subjected to abuse and genocide. And this is an important bit. And for this, we will pursue the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine, as well as bringing to justice those who have committed numerous bloody crimes against civilians, including citizens of the Russian Federation. Now, in practice, as we've seen, Anybody who opposes Russia, any Ukrainian who opposes Russia, is a Nazi. And Nazis are to be eliminated. This was always a war, a genocide. Genocide doesn't have to be against the entire nation. It can be against a subgroup of the nation. And now the subgroup here is uh, Ukrainians opposing Russia. They are Nazis and they are to be eliminated. And we also we've also seen that um, the Russian position is that Ukraine doesn't really exist. That's Putin's position. Ukraine doesn't really exist. It doesn't have nationhood. It doesn't have statehood. It doesn't even have its separate history, separate from Russia, which the Poles might have something to say about. And um, as such, Anybody who opposes uh, Russian occupation is simply a Nazi. Anybody who doesn't oppose Russian occupation, Russian uh, intervention, uh, assimilation into Russia is just a Russian, except he might be speaking this strange language called Ukrainian, but we're going to teach them not to teach Ukraine. From from day one, this was a war of genocide. And... uh, this will be pulled up and used against him if he ever ends up uh, in the dock. You done? <laughs> For now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I'm just checking because I thought there was another dramatic pause. <laughs> another bombardment coming in. I could feel the. I could feel the zeroing in. I've got so, something. I've got something lined up about uh, on relating to Russia's response to the case brought against them before the ICJ. Okay, let's just dial back your five comments here. <clears throat> now, the problem with senility, your first comment was Putin and senility, is this age-old argument that the last thing you want running a um, 
the last person you want running nuclear weapons is somebody who's off their head. Now it's not in in the time of since 1945 when nuclear bombs have been around <clears throat> and weapons of all sorts, um, there have been a series of strange people in command of um, nuclear weapons. We know that Khrushchev and Kennedy pushed the world to the edge with their different policies. We know that um, Brezhnev in his latter years was completely off his trolley. Uh, Andropov as well. We know that Andropov was getting really carried away with the Germans coming. Um, we know that Boris Yeltsin was in such a state that he barely knew what he was doing while his country was literally falling apart. And now we've got Putin in charge. Uh, in America, we've had Reagan, who, let's face it, could come up with some strange things. But I think we've, we've, with Reagan, there was so much structure around the presidential control of the weapons that even if he did decide that this was going to be the Doctor Strange Love Day, um, he would be he would have been stopped. Uh, that so the situation that there was never likely to be a Doctor Strange Love. I never thought there would be a Strange Love on the Western side. There was always the potential on the Russian side because we'd had examples of <clears throat> these issues. The question is, when somebody is senile and they're doing two things, one, going to genocidal war and at the same time threatening um, nuclear holocaust, what is the response? Is that a risk that requires intervention even at the risk of nuclear war? Nip it in the bud. I don't know. I mean, I honestly thought back in the first podcast that NATO was going to do fly top cover. I honestly thought it. The conversation I had with Ben and another friend um, was simply that I was frightened of the anti-aircraft missiles that Putin was going to deploy, bringing down, weakening NATO's power, because NATO's power is air power. And we know that they were able to control matters in Yugoslavia. Now we're in this bizarre situation of watching, in your words, a senile old man destroying a country, um, applying genocide as a military tool to cause no end of horror. He's now locked up all those people in a factory site. At which point do we ask, you know, how many people need to die before we have genocide? But at this stage, what do we do with a senile man? Do we take him on his word or do we just assume that he's senile and that if anybody did respond to him, the, the Russians wouldn't act? Just about the senality, remember the question. It's not about whether we should or not. When you get uh, senile, you get paranoid. And does Russia have any um, circuit breakers to stop him 
Right. Dropping a, first dropping a tactical nuke on Mariupol, then nuking Kiev. What next? The problem with that is we're still back into this genocidal circle, aren't we? We're in this cycle of genocide because it doesn't. If he's already decided that you can destroy as many Ukrainians as possible in the war, it's no odds to him dropping nuclear missiles on Ukraine. Except, except fear for his own life. Precisely. But what I'm saying to you is, he's using, at the moment, he's hammering away at this anvil called Ukraine. If there was an upscaling of aggression, if NATO responded and he went, if he escalated to nuclear weapons, it's no odds to him dropping nuclear weapons on the Ukraine because he's got nothing to lose if he's already set out to commit genocide. If he's going to destroy all of these people anyway, by going to nuclear weapons, all he's doing is uh, it's serving his own side. My question is, if NATO knows that and tries to respond, are they indirectly causing genocide to happen by trying to prevent it? What's occurring now it comes under the definition of genocide. The re- various acts occurring come under the definition of genocide today. I was reading a report that half a million Ukrainians have been uh, literally sent to Siberia to become good little Russians. That's genocide. Well, we know that with deportations from previous regimes in other countries. The thing is here, though. He's already gone there. We know he's already gone there. But by trying to prevent it from getting any worse, I'm, I'm kind of arguing against myself here because, you know, I've always wanted NATO to intervene. If NATO intervened at this stage, it would make the Ukraine a death zone, wouldn't it? Because when you think about it logically, if he is this senile old man, it won't matter to him dropping nuclear missiles on Kiev, Kiev, sorry, and Kharkiv and Odessa. Leave might get nuked before those cities. It's the transport hub, and it's far away from his border. May I sort of ask a question um, and put in at this point? Given that the the current doctrine uh, around the deployment of special weapons uh, by the Russians has remained virtually unchanged, um, that that it is it is a defensive asset for him to use. Um, any form of special weapon within Ukraine would therefore indicate, say, or almost confirm that he is seeing Ukraine as part of ergo an extension of the Russian Federation now. And in, uh, you know, just following up from your question, Phil, I'm sorry for sort of jumping the gun. No, no, no. I mean, I, you know, this is the question. Dustin has mentioned senility, and everybody's talking about 
Putin being senile. I'm accepting it in the conversation here. I'm not so sure that that's the case. I think I think actually is if we were to use the term at all, I think he's genuinely an evil individual. Not that I agree with the idea of evilness. We can have both. He can be a senile, evil person. Evil yes, person. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. But the question is, how do rational people respond to senility when senility has got its finger on a bu- on on the bum? That's 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 the issue here. And it's all right saying we're going to count tanks and we're going to count weapons and money and sanctions and and everything else. The problem is, if we're going to try and get this guy into a courtroom, how do we deal with senility? How does the West take control of Putin? How does it counteract Putin at this stage within the genocidal process? I mean, it's a huge problem and, and scholars and politicians, nobody wants to address it. It's all right saying he's got bowel cancer and every other disease and then addressing him as this senile lunatic who's sat in strange meetings with certain ministers of war and saying all kinds of radical, racial, genocidal content. The point is, how do you counter that? How do we stop it? We can have... You can approach uh, this issue in two ways. You can say that, uh, do we have to intervene because he's a senile, evil tyrant who can start a nuclear war? That's why we have to intervene. Or do we say we can't intervene because he's a senile, evil tyrant who will start a nuclear war? Well, that's the conundrum we've got ourselves in. And and that, to a certain extent, is another reason why we're in this argument over whether this is this war is genocidal. Because we've still got people out there who are suggesting that what we're seeing is not genocidal, even though the evidence is mounting every day. And do you think do you think they're avoiding calling it genocidal? As uh, remember when Macron said that Biden was wrong to call it genocide and the uh, um, U.S. dead diplomats and uh, spokespeople were dialing back uh, Biden, calling it genocide, because uh, in our Western world, if we were to um, state loudly that genocide is occurring in um, in Ukraine, war crimes are occurring in Ukraine, then there would be an imperative to intervene. Precisely. Absolutely. You go back to Eli Weisel when he gave that pleading moment at Auschwitz on the 50th anniversary of liberation and pleaded to Clinton, we must do something in Yugoslavia. The, the, and, <coughs> and similar happened with Rwanda. The problem is, up until the stage where the press, the media, society was prepared to tolerate what was going on, nothing was being done. Once once Eli did his thing, it was very difficult for uh, Clinton to just ignore it. Now, what we've got here is a situation where, let's for instance assume 
Biden was to say, yeah, it's genocide. Then what? I'll tell you what then happens. He's got a whole load of pressure groups and non-governmental, you know, the NGOs and non-governmental organisations and what have you, pouring down on him saying you've got to intervene. He has said that. And that, that panicked, that panicked uh, diplomats and panicked Germany. But he, That's right. He's, he's even called him Putin a war criminal. And that leads, that leads to the rather tricky position that uh, being made stated that uh, Biden, when Biden says he's a war criminal, he's saying that as Joe Biden, not as the president of the United States. Precisely. You see, the problem here is the US Army does not want to intervene. The US Armed Forces do not want to intervene, period. Yeah, they've, they've got more important things to do, like uh, stare at China. Well, they're staring at China, but there's also the fact that they're not convinced that their armies can perform. And and, and I, I tell you this because I speak to generals and colonels and what have you quite often. Um, the problem is here, you look at somebody like Ben Hodges, who's the general tweeting on Twitter, he's making all the right comments. So, for instance, he said um, at one point, this is the end of the Russian Empire and it will turn into a balkanization situation. I agreed with that. I thought it was a good observation. The problem is he doesn't want to go down the route of saying this is genocide and the, and the American army should intervene because they all know, they all know, that if the U US Army and NATO forces get dragged into this, they might not actually do much better than what the Russians are doing. Because once those British and American tanks face Russian missiles, they've got a problem. But the, pro the, the, the bigger issue for me at this stage is, OK, you've identified senility. That in itself is causing no end of problems between global leaders and how to read Putin. There's no experts around who are, telling, who are advising him in the correct way how, how people should deal with this. You've got individuals like Schultz, as you suggested, coming in saying one thing. You've got uh, British Prime Minister, I've forgotten his name for a minute, coming in and saying something else. You've got uh, Biden coming in, making his commentary. You've got the Hungarians saying something else. You've got Belarusians saying something. There's so much, there's so much noise out there. We haven't got a consistent picture. Everybody at one point knew that Hitler was off his trolley. We all knew it. I don't mean we, me. I meant the we, the nations. The United Nations knew he was off his trolley and it had to be ended. But if you go to the United Nations today, not everybody thinks Putin is off his trolley. There's a lot of people who think Putin, especially with all these special Far Eastern relationships Russia has, who are not prepared. I mean, look what happened when the British Prime Minister went to India. There was no debate there about India going against Putin. And the thing is here, we've got a 
genocide taking place. We've got a senile man in power and the world leaders not responding to how this should be dealt with. This is the bigger problem for humanity. <clears throat> this is where your senility becomes confronting an even bigger humanitarian issue. I think we, we've got to that point where there are two very clear strains of, of conversation in, in how we approach the handling of Putin around his corporal capacity um, in, in terms of accessing the use of special weapons and how the West should deal with that. And then, then you know, we're going, we're going back to where you originally discussed the genocide issue and Biden and Biden has, has been very clear on this, you know, just, just back at what you were saying earlier, Dustin, when he told journalists, yes, I called it genocide because it became clearer and clearer that Putin is trying to wipe out the idea of even being Ukrainian. Part of me thinks that if somebody is, you know, Biden has, has recognised clearly there is a danger there. And he will have had the advisors. Well, you know, surely this then begs the question, are people actually looking at him or are they are they taking their time before making any sweet sweeping statement about any medical condition that could be driving Putin's behavior outside of personality disorder, which it's very clear that there, there are, I would say there are key indicators. I'm not a psychiatrist, but from you know, my past, there's definitely key indicators of a narcissistic personality. So we where is this sort of going to lead us in terms of configuration of the two? Or do we have to address this as two completely separate issues? And therefore, are we, is this going to complicate any future dealings with Putin? Well, let me be clear what I'm saying here. The, the reason why I'm talk, talking about senility and focusing on this issue directly with Dustin as regards Putin is because legally, legally, as far as I understand, Putin is a representative of Russia. He is in that legalist. He is a legal position. He is the representative of Russia. He is responsible technically for Russia. Um, he has legal standing. Where I'm concerned is it's OK for Biden to trolley off on on his helicopter and in passing say this guy's a war criminal or, or whatever he said it. The point is, it's not being established in the correct places and formalized as a problem. People are chatting and not everybody's chatting about it. Like I said, the British Prime Minister met the Indian minister uh, in the last 48 hours and there was no discussion. And while we have a significant part of the United Nations who that's not prepared to stand against Putin, we have this huge problem. OK, I'm going to talk about NATO and Europe and all these other uh, institutions later, but as it stands at the moment, in in world public opinion, i.e. the global leaders who, who make up the world, the G7 countries and what have you, they haven't all stood up and said Putin is a war criminal and we don't want him in our in our lives anymore. And to a certain extent, that's justifying his legal position. It's it, 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 he's not undermined. He still holds that legal position as the boss of, of Russia. 
the Russian formal position is that they're engaged in um, acts of self-defense uh, under the United Nations Charter. See? And See, he's got it. Because while, while Putin is not being isolated, okay, we all call him this senile old man, but while lots of people are not saying he's got to be removed, as Dusty has just said, the Russians are not, in, are not committing to illegal warfare technically. They're, they're committing to United Nations intervention action. Yeah, and, he, and in his speech of the 24th, he starts off going, what about uh, Syria, Yugoslavia and Iraq? There you are. He's put the whole of Western history right on everybody's doorstep and said, you did it. Why can't we? And we're back. We're back to the beginning. So I actually don't think he's as senile as people think he is. I think he's I think he's a calculated evil individual. Um, well, senility can express itself in paranoia. You can still have uh, uh, you can still be high functioning, except your functioning gets channeled into uh, dangerous behavior. Yeah, of course. I mean, I suppose for a while, Hitler was quite compassmentous at times, uh, even after the bomb went off. But the, the, the fact of the matter is the rest of the world, the global community, and I'm not talking about public opinion on social media, Talking about among world leaders, they haven't all got together and said, you've got to go. You're a danger to mankind. That's the problem. And it's all right, we're all sat in this bubble listening to what the Western Anglo-American press say and a few Europeans and van der Leyen saying her comments and what have you. But get outside and go and have a look at Al Jazeera and you did, the, the whole picture changes. The, the, the entire picture changes when when we when they were in Mariupol the other day. All you could see was Ukrainian losses and Russian victory, which is of course the opposite to everything that the West press is saying at the minute. And the tank chasers going on about this, that, and the other with tanks. Well, an Arab press officer from Al Jazeera being translated because he was speaking his mother tongue was going through the rubble at Mariupol and it was line after line of Russian of uh, Ukrainian tanks and military equipment which had been destroyed a totally different picture to the picture that's being presented by the western press and you then know and then as you listen to the people that they interviewed I'm, hang on a second Leslie. he goes and interviews a whole load of Ukrainian people and they're all saying well it's great to be liberated now, that message isn't the same message that Dustin has just mentioned. And that message is being fed into the Middle East. And the Middle East is saying, well, you know, Russia helped us when the big, bad, ugly Anglo-Americans came to, to beat us all up and telling us how to live. The Russians have always supported us. So, OK, in this one, we'll support them. What I don't get with that, obviously, is things like the fact that Ukrainian food supply is going to keep the Middle East fed or North Africa fed. 
going to have starvation. But let's let don't worry about the starvation bit. We'll support Putin because he was a good mate to us in the last 20 years. And that's the problem. And so when when somebody does something which is to cross the east west boundary, like the British prime minister did the other day. You're expecting a meeting of minds that Putin is this evil, dodgy, senile, whatever bloke. And there's not even a mention. So here's the great champion who's supporting the lions of Ukraine, talking with one of Putin's major supporters, and the whole subject has not come up in for dis discussion. And uh, I'm terribly confused because if the British is giving all this military equipment and a few of the 40 tanks that the British Army has to the Ukrainian army to fight some wars. Poland. All right, giving them to Poland so that Poland can then give the whole load of rubbish to the Ukrainians. Yeah. You know, it's a great trade. <laughs> so you do that, great trade. And then what? You go to India and you don't out the Indians for backing this dude. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That's not how it works. And that's why that British Prime Minister only went there to cover his back for the party cake crap that's been going on. And that's when local politics, which is what's happened with Biden, overrides the proper confrontation with against Putin. Well, the fact that the British Prime Minister is an alcoholic, drug-taking, drug -taking, uh, compromised, uh, useful idiot for Russia is a major issue uh, stopping NATO acting properly. Can you say what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't like sitting on the fence at the exercise. Um, the no, I have to be careful. I have to be careful. <laughs> you, you know us lawyers. <laughs> See, that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Putin's paid for all these governments. Putin has backed all these governments to the hilt, like Schroeder, Merkel, Macron. Macron's predecessor, Scarzozzi, Trump. Well, investment, his investment in the Tory party and in um, Schroeder in Germany, he spent a couple of million. He's, he's got a veto on, uh, on the European Union and on NATO. Right. So he's paid chicken feed and, you know, well, monkey nuts and all yeah. these monkeys have done what he said that the point is for you to get to the point of getting genocide institutionalized you've got to still get all of those guys on side that's the problem so at this moment when you're talking about senility of a major world leader who's committing genocide you're in that huge difficulty of getting that codified within global institutional thinking. You know what the issue is here, Phil? If uh, US or UK representative sit at the Security Council and say, this is genocide, that brings up an imperative to act because there's a little something 
called the responsibility to protect, which is a global political commitment endorsed at the United Nations at the 2005 World Summit. And one of its aims was to prevent genocide. Uh, there's a lot of argument as to whether uh, genocide being committed between uh, states or within a state uh, is justification for military action. With some people arguing that it is, with others arguing that it isn't. And that brings back issues of the legal, political and moral imperative. If we've got the say that uh, P2P, uh, as it's called, requires an intervention, legally requires an intervention, if we call it genocide at the United Nations. That's one issue. Uh, if there's a political obligation, uh, if you don't act, then you're undermining the integrity of the United Nations, such as it is. And there's the third issue. If uh, the moral issue, if European uh, and American leaders come out and say this is genocide, uh, their citizens will say, well, we should act. And I think that's a particularly difficult problem for Germany. If Scholz was to come out and say this is genocide, he can't even come close to calling it genocide without uh, facing cause to react. Let me just dial it back before we get back to Germany. When you said it's a call to act, you are correct. And this is what fundamentally drives me, in my opinion, to why NATO, the West and the EU should have intervened from the very beginning. OK, that's the way I see it. I called genocide early, probably before most people, because I could see what was happening. And I did that thinking not only would NATO give air cover, but there would be a general step in from United Nations to stop it on the grounds of humanitarian interest and care. OK. The reason why countries won't intervene and won't go down this route is because it will open them to historical crimes allegations. And one of the two of those would be Afghanistan and Iraq. And then you're in a whole ball of problems. And no, no political leader, whether it's Biden, the British Prime Minister or any of the others who were involved in Iraq and Afghanistan, want to go down that road and have that uh, have that on their record. It's all right for everybody to say Tony Blair and what's his name, Billy Bush, were, were war criminals for what they did because they created false parallels. They pushed United Nations into a dangerous place and then invaded all of which is now firing back at us in the Ukraine. Ukraine's, Ukraine's getting what, get, what it's getting simply because that's what the British and the Americans did. Yeah, Putin learned what they did and is playing back at us. We're, we're looking into the mirror of what's gone on for the last 22 years in Western defence thinking and Western defence behaviour. But nobody on their watch 
wants to have the record of opening the door to war crimes investigation or genocide investigation. Look what happened with Northern Ireland and the parachute regiments on Bloody Sunday. That caused no end of mayhem in political circles. So nobody wants to have these problems on their watch. Now, let's talk about Germany. Well, the problem with Germany is a legacy of gone into Russia and caused 28 million people to be murdered and killed. And that legacy of doing what they did. OK, the German people have overcome that. They've confronted the past. They hate what's happened. They absolutely bitterly hate it. But now they live with the situation where they've got a war going on with the two countries that they occupied and caused no end of mayhem. And being asked not only to choose, but to go into a confrontation. Having been told for almost 80 years now, you will never invade another country. You will never do war with another country. You will never do weapons of mass destruction to another country. Two, two German politicians came along and manipulated that situation to their own self-interest. And I think funded by Putin. The first was Gerhard Schroeder, who clearly was so linked up with Putin, he was even on the Gazprom program. And then there's Merkel. And I've always been suspicious of Merkel because she started her politics in the DPR at the same time when Putin was in that community. And old ties bind. And I don't believe at any time Merkel stood up to Putin and said no. It was always backing down and doing what Russia wanted. So when you got to 2008 and 2014, when she was uh, when when she was on the German watch, she stepped back from allowing Ukraine joining NATO, and she stepped back from putting up arms and weapons. Um, at the time of the Crimea in 2014. And worse, she then demilitarized the, the German armed forces, which frankly, the person to blame for that is not Merkel, it's van der Leyen, who's the EU president. Because what she did to the German armed forces was an utter disgrace, e e even on the most basic things. And how she's in a position as president of Europe is just beyond conceivable. So the two people, three people who, in my mind, has really caused the problems of the Germans. One was well paid, overpaid and in Putin's pocket Schroeder. One had a heritage, went back to the DDR days. And the other, she's still in your, she, she's the president of Europe. I mean, for Christ's sake, how did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. The EU is not an elected body. They all sat round, they came to an agreement and she got into that position. I'm a European and I'm attacking Europe. So we're in a dreadful position where the German armed, German armed forces, I'll tell you now, the German armed forces are not people who don't want to fight. They're not people who say we're not going to play. What they are is a whole load of people who've been betrayed by politicians who just literally shafted them. I mean, why you want to have a maternity chair in a Leopard tank is beyond me. Well, yeah, but you don't think they're also Russo friendly? Do you remember that uh, German, the 
commander of the German fleet, that admiral who got drunk in India and started saying that <laughs> Russia has every right to <laughs> treat Ukraine as its backyard. Yeah, yeah but you're always going to find the one-offs. But from, well, he, was, he, was the, he was a top guy. I mean, you can... yeah, but in my community, I have been very close to what used to be called the MGFA, the, the, the Military History Centre of the Bundeswehr. I'm very close to Beatrice Heuser, who was the director general of that esteemed body, and she was also a Bundeswehr uh, university professor. Um, we knew the problems. I was very, I was very close to Karl Heinz Frieser, who wrote the book Blitzkrieg Legenda, yeah, the legend, and he was, he, he was a mounted, you know, an armoured infantry officer, a colonel. And he could do military. He just wasn't allowed to. That's the problem. Even, I mean, people don't know the full story, but chapter, volume eight of the history of the Second World War, which is a full-blown military history of the German army in 43 and 44, was hated. It was absolutely hated. And the guys that came in to the to the organization just at the time of that book being published, absolutely hated Karl Heinz Frieser because he did, quote, military history and not social history of war. And you've got to look at the academics and, and look at the kinds of quality of the academics who are out there on the German side, who, <laughs> frankly, I, I mean, I have major problems with them. Yeah. Um, and they've not helped. And and at the same time, you talk to a German, you know, one of my closest friends, because I put some military blogs up and did the genocide paper and what have you, one of my great uh, German friends, I'm not going to mention any names, but he's a very senior uh, scholar in Germany, uh, stopped following me because I wrote too, military, too, too much military content. So friendship aside, he buggered off. Well, I understand that. That's not a problem for me. Yeah, I'm not on Twitter because of the numbers of friends like some loonies. My concern is we're not having proper academic and scholarly debate over what is the most horrific situation I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot. I've seen Biafra. I've seen Bangladesh. I was when, when I was when I was growing up in, as a little lad, our first television, the first pictures you saw at six o'clock every day was Vietnam. And it was horrific. And then we've had Northern Ireland. We've had Yugoslavia, Grozny, I mean, all of it. But this is just about the worst. Because, as we've already alluded to, this military this military objective is genocidal there's no there's no escaping from that and that's the problem and that dials back to senility you were talking about uh, germany's position remember what happened with libya yeah and uh, German abstention, and that was directly connected to uh, responsibility to protect, and that undermined 
the United Nations very seriously, it was uh, dramatically. Yeah, and who was the who was the Queen in charge of Germany at that time? Two thousand and eleven. Yeah, and and which Her Majesty was in power then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And every, every, everybody was mad at Germany, and it was it was a real crisis that we've forgotten about. Okay, uh, I'll just give you an idea. When I was in the American Academy in Berlin, and Merkel had just taken power, or quite recently, um, I was shouted down by young scholars, young scholars, all saying to me, "A, I had no right to attack Angela Merkel about her policies." Two, because as, a femi- as feminists, they all believed that it was right to have a female chancellor. And three, her standing up on, on, the, si- on the side of Putin and Russia was acceptable. Stop the war. And, and those to me are not arguments for why you would criticise a global leader. I was attacking the fact that she had not allowed Ukraine to join NATO. See, my my problem here is I'm not actually on support of NATO, but if you're going to go around trying to make every nation in the world members of NATO, you don't, when you have the opportunity, say no to Ukraine. And that, to me, was Putin talking through Merkel saying no. I've always thought that. I mentioned Libya for a specific reason, because uh, in his uh, rant on the 24th, he goes into detail. He talks about Iraq, Libya and Syria. He doesn't mention Afghanistan. No. And he blames uh, the twisting of decisions taken by the UN Security Council on the Libyan issue as leading to destruction of a state and uh, creation of a hotbed of terrorism. Yep. And that's him twisting responsibility to protect and going, what about? And he also mentions uh, Syria in that context. Well, you know, Russia's, I'm going to say Russia's using chemical weapons, but Bellingcat says that it's a, it's a Syrian regime. Not much difference for me. Um, but and he goes into special detail on Iraq. And in the case of Iraq, the US was saying that they're going we're going in to disarm Saddam. Uh, we're going to take away his uh, weapons of uh, mass destruction. We don't, Blair said, we don't want regime change. But it was blatantly obvious that uh, the US and the UK wanted to get rid of Saddam. And that may be tied to daddy issues with Bush Jr. and Saddam trying to kill his dad. Uh, I understand that. I understand what you're saying. What you're perhaps forgetting is, if you go back to 9-11, when that happened, Putin went out and supported America openly. He announced we support America. That's why he doesn't mention Afghanistan. Now, he immediately put 
his uh, Minister of Defence, I can't remember his name, Ledev, I can't, names past me now, to working out with Condoleezza Rice the idea of having uh, Russian troop movements and supporting ally, uh, American and allied forces going into places like Kandahar, if I remember rightly. And the reason why, partly one of the reasons why I know this is because I actually met and led battlefield tours on behalf of US Special Forces um, a, a year or two afterwards. And some of those guys had come back from from having literally landed in Russia to then go off to do it, to get into Afghanistan. And it struck me that the relationship between America and Russia was very, very close. That suddenly the two great powers who've been at each other's throats for 50 years were all doing things very nicely together and everybody was working together. And then I was reminded by a friend who was um, a NATO officer in, in 1989 when the war came down that actually through the 80s, with all of the nonsense that was going on, East German, Russian, American and British forces were doing joint operations together. And there'd been a lot of um, working, close liaison type work. And in Yugoslavia, there had been connections between uh, Russian, Russian and allied forces with in during U United Nations duties. So there had been a relationship between Britain and, and, and America and the Russians and Canadians, NATO. And that was all very good. The problem you get is when Bush says we don't want the ABM treaty anymore. And at the same time, Putin says, so can Russia now be a member of NATO? So having supported the Americans in Afghanistan, he requested membership of NATO and the Americans ummed and ahed. Now, the point here is it doesn't matter whether they, Russia should have been a member or not. The responses he was getting were such that it's all right for, for the Russians to be on side at certain points, but most of the time they're the enemy. So by the time you get to your Libyan situation, the relationships between uh, Putin and the West is pretty much down the toilet. I think Putin was getting worried that he might get intervened. Intervened by Americans? Yeah, I can see, I can see that. Uh, we can go back to um, the issue of uh, the right to intervene in the case of genocide, um, because Ukraine brought a case before the ICJ, International Court of Justice, refer, regarding uh, Russia's attack under the Genocide Convention. And Russia is extremely careful there to state, to avoid using uh, its claim of genocide on Russian speakers in Ukraine as an excuse for military intervention in Ukraine. It says we are carrying out self-defense. We're not, we're not intervening to stop genocide. Even if Putin is still, even though Putin says it's genocide, we're not doing it because it's genocide, because it's a different type of genocide. 
And he's being very careful. He's, they're being very careful because they're probably worried that if uh, the specter of genocide is formally raised at the United Nations or by NATO or the, the EU, then that will create a justification, whether moral or legal, that cannot be ignored uh, to intervene in the war on the side of Ukraine as defense against genocide. And they seem very worried about this. The not to, yeah, n not to create, uh, not not Let's give an opportunity for the Americans to call it genocide and then have a whole. Uh, not even uh, to raise the possibility that genocide justifies intervention. Because they could have said, we're intervening in Ukraine to stop genocide. And raise that as a defense against Ukrainian claims. Of course, Putin is saying it's genocide. Russia and legal filings are saying it's not, we're not intervening because of genocide, we're intervening under UN Charter. It's, uh, it's the Russian have your cake and eat it. So, where, where does, where, if that's Russia's position, and this sort of, I find it a little odd, and, and that's, that's, that's Russia's thing. <laughs> I mean, going back and sort of stepping back a, a little while, we, we, we mentioned uh, Raphael Lemkin um, and, and his whole sort of work and, and sort of focus on genocide. How does that relate to what Russia is claiming to do now? Does, and it's going to sound really naive, and I don't mean it to, but surely the, the this, this act of genocide almost counterclaims anything that the Russians have claimed with, with the United Nations. Well, Lemkin was uh, was writing in, when he coined the phrase in 1943, um, the phrase genocide. He was writing during the war and he was writing as a Pole who had escaped from Poland. And he wrote in uh, Access Rule in Occupied Europe, he created uh, a term for uh, what Winston Churchill called a crime without a name, called the genocide. And he, during a war where atrocities were being committed, and the, correct me if I'm uh, wrong here, Philip, the final solution hadn't actually kicked in totally. But uh, he, he coined the phrase uh, genocide and he was an academic and he was writing uh, legal treaties and he was writing about uh, access and German uh, laws in occupied Europe. And he was uh, reacting to the situation as an academic uh, without standing apart from the situation and going, uh, well, we should discuss this nasty business when it's all over in 20 years time when we have archives and we can interview witnesses he was already constructing a future genocide convention uh, in his head and uh, constructing legal norms 
during the war. As I recall, and I could be wrong, the two forms of information that he was getting was not only his own personal experience of what a, what was going on under German rule, but he had got information from Jan Karski, and he'd also heard the British political debate in, I always forget whether it's November or October 1942, when Sir Anthony Eden spoke in the Houses of Parliament and, and discussed mass murder. And the crime that has no name, um, there was another item too, the Polish Black Book. I used to have a copy, I don't know where it is anymore. Um, but also Hutchinson produced a book in 1942, which showed lists and lists of um, Germans committing the most heinous crimes. Uh, it was just literally a little paperback book, um, German crimes in Russia uh, and the Ukraine. And there was so there was there was input coming in from Russia, the Soviet Union into the Western press. There was Jankarski's revelations of what he had discovered. There was the Polish Black Book, and then there was the evidence that was coming the the, the British way. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, a lot, a lot of people don't talk about it, but the Royal Air Force actually had a propaganda unit or a public information unit that was tracking crimes. And they'd, they'd track crimes in Crete, Italy, Balkans, um, France, in, and they were working around about 41, 42. And some of that information was being fed into RAF Bomber Command because Bomber Command were the sponsors. So there was this stack of information and intelligence that was coming in from occupied Europe, plus there were all the people. And it's probably a surprise to a lot of people, but if you were in the if you were in the West, if you were in the wind, um, the Swiss, the British Swiss Embassy you would have heard so much about the crimes against the Jews, you'd been you'd been staggered. It was impossible for anybody to not know in the British government and the American government, because they were sharing intelligence and information from 1941. It would have been impossible for anybody to say, we didn't know this was going on. Well, just 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 so you know, in 1945, when Belson was being liberated and they were remanaging it, there were British politicians who were saying this is impossible, it never happened. And they were in Parliament and they too were forgotten in this whole story. So there was an awful lot of denial going on. But you're right, Lemkin, in the midst of all this flow of information and intelligence, as opposed to, yeah, was putting together a story, story. Um, a, a form of analysis which which is quite remarkable because when you think about it just the worst crimes humanity's ever seen and some guy who has been highly affected by it sits down and says I'm going to rationalize it that, that that's 
this was a war crime against him directly. He was he he would be killed. Yeah, but there's a point here. As a humanitarian, which I like to think I am, and kind of semi-pacifist, um, I feel what's going on in U- Ukraine is a crime against me too. And that's one of the reasons why I think we have to fight against this rubbish tank tank chasing and find a solution to ending it, because I don't want to see any more children crying like I did this morning. You know, enough. Can you imagine if there were smartphones back in 1941? Yeah, everybody would have ignored and it. Twitter, and, and Twitter, and you'd see Auschwitz. No, they wouldn't. And people would be going, that's fake. Yeah, no, they would be, they, they'd all be wanting to listen to, they, if, if, if they had smartphones then, all they'd be interested in was whether Manstein's defences had worked and whether Rommel was chasing the British to Tunis. They wouldn't be inter- not interested in anything else. Yeah, I'm shocked at the degree we have uh, wanking over maps, uh, tiny maps showing individual villages supposedly captured or recaptured by Russians and Ukrainians, when Mariupol has been flattened, and that's a city of 300,000, and half a million Ukrainians have been sent to Siberia. Who the hell cares about two destroyed T-72s and the capture of the Vitsnitska village. Well, that probably explains why I've withdrawn from all of the discussion and debate, because it's not going anywhere. Um, There is, first of all, there's no debate on Twitter about where where all of this is going. There's nothing, let me dial back a second. My academia account has more discussion about where all of this is leading my Facebook account and Twitter has nothing. I, I've got to the stage now where to me Twitter I come in and I have a look. Um, I'll drop a thread every now and again. Um, you know it, it was a book tour the other day. The next one might be the Hitler's battle with Tiramisu but basically I think the whole the whole thing that's happened on Twitter is just beyond unbelievable. I mean you've you, you either have the guys who who understandably find the whole thing so horrid in the Ukraine, they withdraw and just stick to the stuff that they know, which is, I don't know, the Battle of Britain and all that kind of thing. And you have the others who want to count T-72s that have been blown up or BTGs and all this stuff. And to me, there's as much war porn as there is porn on Twitter. So I, I, I'm just not very interested. You know, it was a lot... Okay, when I was a teenager, I was interested in tiger tanks and the Battle of the Fillets and all of that stuff. But I'm not a teenager anymore. And all of this expensive um, intelligence acquisition of of qualifications and doing research. I mean, why would I waste it on looking at T-72s? I mean, we've got a human tragedy taking place. I mean, we've got to use our minds, even mine to put into a solution of how this is all going to stop. And it's bloody difficult, which is why I had that conversation about senility, because when you try and break it down and handle it in the way perhaps Lemkin might have done, it's almost impossible to come to a decent... I mean, he, he could see he had the value of black and white. The Nazis were black, everybody else was white. 
But we don't have that. We don't have that situation. Yeah, I know you could write your head, but basically we knew who the Nazis were. We knew who the bad guys were and we knew to a certain extent, OK, the Russians were naughty in a lot of the crap that they were doing. Yes, we understand that. And yeah, I've never I've never backed away from the things that the German, the Russians committed in 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 Germany. But then I've also never backed away from the number of rapes the German soldiers committed in Poland and Russia, which, you know, conveniently forgotten by Mr. Beaver and others. Um, and Ilya Ehrenberg, you know, we talk about what Putin's doing now and Goebbels and all of this stuff, but how many people remember Ilya Ehrenberg and the horrendous stuff that he was pouring to the Germans, uh, to the Russian soldiers? And all the crimes, I mean, if you, if you just tracked my Luftwaffe unit from 1942 right the way through to 45, I mean, the, I don't think there's a month goes by when there hasn't been some major crimes. And that's a, that's a Wehrmacht unit. And if, if only 10% of the German soldiers were committing crimes, so like 2.3 million, can you imagine? I think it's unacceptable for scholars to take a, a side in military operations. I just think it's wrong. I think it's unacceptable to uh, take a viewpoint that uh, because the West has done evil, and it has, that anything that its opponents do is good and must be defended. And that's something we're seeing, and it's terrible. Well, I mean, I, I'm... You've got these guys who want to chase tanks. You've got these guys who want to go on about tires. And you wonder where all this expensive experience and, and academic, you know, quality. And, and you've got academics that are scared to say it's genocide. What? Yeah, but this comes back down to moral integrity. You know, you've got to be able to wake up in the morning and, and, and look at yourself and say, well, that's who I am. I, I I know that doesn't make me very popular with a lot of people, and I understand that. That's fine. But there's no way you're going to get me. I'm not religious. Don't get me wrong. I'm not some kind of religious freak. I just don't believe that human beings should behave in this despicable way to each other. And that's what Willard thought when he sat down and tried to create legal protection against the sort of mechanized genocide. Yeah, well, you, should, you should trademark that, by the way. Yeah, but the, 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 the feeling I have about um, Lemkin is one of the, you know, he, I don't like using these terms evil and favourites, but, and, and people I'm particularly fond of. Um, but Lemkin, when I first read his book back in, whew, 1992. Everybody just, had forgotten about him up, up, up to then, hadn't they? Yeah, I, I, I had a funny family. Um, Uncle he was, Roland. He was forgotten until the 90s, basically. Yeah, I had a funny family. Um, Uncle Roland had been one of the liberators of, had gone in as a liberating trade unionist into um, Belson. And um, all of that genocidal stuff was passed to me. 
but here, here might be an interesting observation. Um, my copy of Axis Rule was given to me by the PLO ambassador in Bahrain. <laughs> so I didn't allude to the fact that my parents spent a lot of time in the Middle East, so I know a certain amount of the Middle East and you know I made my point a long time ago yes I did read the Quran um, I don't agree with much of it I read the Bible too I didn't read much of the, don't agree with much of that either I just think there's a point where human beings have to be I don't know nicer to each other and I, that doesn't mean that I have to kiss and cuddle every time I walk down the street and the nasty old git on the corner there who won't sell oranges cheaper than a pound a dozen doesn't mean I have to kiss him every morning but it does mean that I don't go in there beat him up and steal his oranges or do worse damage and that's the problem here we've got to a stage where you can you can look on social media at the most horrific scenes and and people will almost party around it and and scholars who really should know better well well, I used to think that. I'm not sure I think that now anymore. I think scholars who pretend to have some kind of moral status, instead of using their skills to try and contemplate how we're going to get out of this mess, want to, you know, make equivalence with previous wars or come to the conclusion that somehow the American and the British armies would do better in in this war than the Russians have. And, you know, a lot of people said to me, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. The Anaconda plan's wrong. Uh, the Russians will be gone. So, OK, we're how many weeks in now? Six or eight weeks in. They haven't gone. They've lost. Maripol's been, been taken. They've caused God knows how many casualties. The war is continuing. NATO is slapping itself on the back and saying, Look how good we are. Uh, everybody's supplying more and more weapons to the Ukraine, and the Ukraine is getting more and more destroyed every day. <laughs> I mean, the, the, just just the damage to the places we've seen at the moment is going to take 20 years to be recovered. Mm-hmm. If they stop fighting now, and all the builders of Europe and the world move into Ukraine, they might just have it sorted in 20 years. German taxpayer is going to be paying for Ukrainian rebuilding if Ukraine ever joins the EU. Well, so I, all of the institutions, as far as I'm concerned, has let us down for various reasons. Um, the, Uni- the United Nations is paralyzed. But- it's paralyzed because it's been compromised from within. Um, and, so, uh, and it was compromised earlier with uh, compromised earlier by uh, 2003. Yeah, well, Blair and Blair, Colin Powell and all of those people, they compromised United Nations and it never recovered. I've said this many. I even said it in a podcast with Ben. You can call uh, Bush and Blair uh, warmongers and potential war criminals at the same time as calling uh, put in a sadistic, senile, war criminal bastard. You don't have to choose sides. Yeah, but you see, I think 
you might be surprised, but I think Blair and Bush were more senile, more evil, more aggressive than Putin. And I know that's going to sound wild, but Blair, what Blair did was to use his illegal intelligence to connive to a situation to enable him to go to war. I wouldn't agree with you. I think Putin is is a, is a different class of no, of but what Blair did is get, gets us here. Yeah. Because he connived with using his legal mind to get Britain into a war with America in Iraq while undermining United Nations. The gravity of that situation is the legacy we have now. And when a lawyer, when a lawyer uses his skills to compromise the United Nations and all the laws and precedents of war to make war on a country which at that stage had no known relationship to the Twin Towers, that to me is evil, because that's when a lawyer does what he's not supposed to do. And he Russia is using criminals. that. He worked for the criminals. Russia is using that to uh, to go what about in in Ukraine? Yeah, and and I, I had a huge argument with a whole load of American officers in 2006 about Iraq. I said, this is going to come back and bite you on the arse. If you went there with honest means, just say Saddam Hussein is an evil bastard and we want to get rid of him. And we're going to have just go and invade. We're going to have evidence of uh, Ukrainian prisoners being abused and put into camps and yeah, their rights see. their rights violated and Russia is going to go. Well, first off, it never happened. This is fake news. Second, Guantanamo. Well, it's not. And it's not even that. It's it's Abu Ghraib. Yeah. You just go to Abu Ghraib and we're all back all, all over again. And Russia is going to do this. It's, they always deny and then at, they deny at the same time as they go what about. Yeah. And I've said all along that when you create a precedent, there's some evil git comes along and exploits it to their own benefits. And that's where Bush and Blair are the criminals in this. It's not that they went to war. I, people go to war all the time. There's been so many wars since 1945. I'm exhausted with it all. But the problem here is Blair and Bush worked together as, quote, Democrats using the legal systems to contrive to put people in a war which was illegal. If we ever see Putin before the ICC, he's going to be defended by an excellent lawyer who's going to say Blair Bush. Yeah, but look at look at the people who were in all of this. We, we, we see them turning up in the situation with this Epstein character. So it doesn't just the the horrors of the institutions doesn't just end with the wars. It's the way the whole system has been working. So Dershowitz, who's this great lawyer at the time of, of 2003, he gets wrapped up with, with um, Epstein. And then you start asking yourself all these questions. How can all of these institutions, which are supposedly there to protect 
the societies we live in and then suddenly they're all working against humanity and nobody says well this is really outrageous we've got to deal some we've got to deal with this no what they all say is well there's too many tanks being destroyed the russians will be over soon and how you get to uh, uh, i'm still i'm still how you get to this situation i mean people just don't study i suppose but some idiots come up with the idea that you need a million men to occupy the ukraine once you've occupied it really just get a couple of old dudes from germany and say well how many of you did occupy this country (laughs) at most two hundred thousand people a million are you kidding me we had a water fight get out of here and that's the problem the germans had what uh two million on the eastern front well i'll tell you now in all the areas which were occupied by Germans that I studied, you never had more than 500 men at any one time. And they had areas as big as 160,000 hectares. And that's that's going from the south of Bialystok all the way down to Przani and going right over into Belarus and coming west towards you. And you know where I'm talking about, my forest. But if you... you Look at the railway troops that were running the railways between Odessa and Warsaw. They had five trains, two battalions. Blimey. That's the reason why the Russians could march through as partisans 1,500 kilometres, because the whole, the whole space is empty. Well, they're not now. So you just put a few pillboxes in strategic points along those roads a couple of drones a couple of cameras yeah and it's over it's just 1984 you don't need million men blimey it's like these dudes that say we need a larger population because we need more industry oh yeah how does that work everything's being robotized all industries are demanding. Why do we need millions and millions of people to run an economy? We don't need less. Going back to what we were saying. uh... But those calculations come into the kind of strategic analysis that are being done on Twitter, which is why they're nonsense. They're built on nothing. And it's almost like, you know, does that that naval bloke who comes on and says, well, you know, there's going to be an in- you need all these tanks for encirclement. He should stick with what he knows, which is boats. And he should really avoid talking about tanks and all that other stuff, because he has consistently, since the war started, has got it wrong. He got it wrong about logistics when I said it was genocide. And now he's he got it wrong when he, when he said the army's retreating and they're out of Kharkiv and Kiev. And I said, no, they're not. It's not over yet. And he's got it wrong now when he's turning around and saying they need more tanks to do an encirclement. The guy is off his trolley. He's got hundreds of thousands of people following him and he's an idiot. Which goes to prove, you know, the Pied Piper of Hamlin is actually alive and well and living on Twitter. What is it? In the world of the blind, the one-eyed is king. 
<laughs> We've got academics selling their books. Yeah, well, via their terrible threads on Twitter. Yeah, well, I wouldn't buy any of those books. And we and know we, who we're talking about because, you know, what's his we, name? Admiral can't be bothered to know because nobody's interested. I mean, who cares? Uh, he was the second, most, America, second most second. important man in the world or whatever. Yeah, well, you know. The he won the, battle, the, second he won the Battle of Berlin. Yeah, the Second World War books, Tosh, too. I mean, the guy is just rubbish. And we've got that category of academic. And then we've got another category of academic that's going, uh, we can't talk about Ukraine because Israel, Syria, Afghanistan, Libya. And we've got another category, I think that's the worst category of academic going, we can't talk Ukraine because we don't have the full picture. And we have to analyze everything when the fog of war is lifted. The fog of war will never be lifted. Well, I mean, that comes to the question, doesn't it? How many need to die before you call it genocide? Lampin called it genocide during the war. Four years in and one year in perhaps to really starting up the final solution. To my mind, you don't need to have lots of deaths before you get to genocide. You just need to know where they're going. And we already had the warnings where Putin was going long before all of this. They should never have happened. And the failures for this come down to NATO, the United Nations and the USA. They're the ones that are guilty. As to all the levels of academics, I understand the idea that you need to have information, but I don't think you need to have the information before you call murder, murder. If there's a dead body in front of you, it's a dead body. You don't need millions. As to, what was the other one? You had, you had the ones that, Needed okay. information. You had yeah. the ones that denied it because no, that you have what about you have what about? I'm not even talking about. Oh the yeah, ones. well, what aboutism? I mean, that is bollocks. There's fog of war. There's uh, buy my book on nodal warfare, and there's uh... <laughs> and there's what about? Yeah, it's tedious. It's all tedious. Because what are you going to do? I'm certainly not buying any of the people's books who pontificate in how their book relates to a war from 19 whenever that's now being replicated in the Ukraine, because none of it is. So, and remember not to put a link into Philip's uh, book. Remember not to put one in. Well, I've never used my book as relevance to what's going on here. Yeah. Apart from saying you don't need this many people. And I base that on my own research evidence. And most of the time I had the, you know, the Putin's hammer article pinned to my account um, because I actually genuinely want people to understand what genocide is. And you can have genocide by artillery and you can have genocide by bombing. You don't need an oven. Yeah, the problem is people don't think. So I'm going to give you a 1941 scenario. Okay. Britain's on the ropes. So what does it do? 
it bombs Germany and it attacks the civilians. It's genocide. Sorry. I've always thought it. Never had any doubts. And the person, uh, there's a proportionality argument here, Philip. The, the, the person who told me that was a Lancaster bomber pilot. And he did all the missions and he was my uncle. And he said, look, it's not good. And although he never said it, when I spoke to Noble Franklin years ago, he really regretted what had happened. Yeah, I do know that there were other bomber pilots and said there's no alternative. <coughs> Leonard Cheshire. And Leonard Cheshire was a very brave guy. I'm not taking any of the laurels away from them. They were ordered to do something which I think was not very nice. And it came from the top. I, I will argue here, I will argue here, but I will draw a line at certain points because you, you can have something that the same act occurring at different times, being uh, being uh, uh, acted contrary to the laws of war, I would never call the bombing of Germany genocide. I call it uh, after a certain point, you could argue that there was contrary to the laws of war. It's up to you if you want to. I call but it for instance, it's the same as the 7th of September 1940 when the bombers struck the working class areas of London. That was genocide too. They picked okay. on the working class and the aim was to identify a social group and cause them extreme harm, if not eradicate them. And the bombing, the, the first day of the Blitz on September the 7th, uh, Saturday, September the 7th, 1940, was that purpose and that purpose alone. When ha Before Harris came to power, the, the Royal Air Force was told just bomb the cities and they strung bombs all over the place. I walked down the street in June, that was bombed in July 1941. There is the nearest thing there was to anything military was a textile factory that was making nappies. The rest was civilian streets of houses, hospitals, doctors, pubs. And they aimed for it. I understand that. They hit Arkan 173 times. Not 400? No. Huh? But then compare it with Dresden. Dresden they hit in two days. The question is, why did Arkan, you know, I've had this before, why did Arkan have fewer casualties than, than um, Dresden? Well, it's simple. People got so used to the bombing that they went out of their way to be protected and then ran to measures. So you can defend against severe bombing if you have the time. Mariupol, the people don't have the time. And they've been put into a position where me mechanised genocide has literally wiped them off the face of the earth. We've got Holocaust by artillery, same as Holocaust by bullets. Yeah. This is the this is the Holocaust by artillery. And very soon we're going to have another kind of Holocaust. That might be a subject <laughs> for a future podcast. This has... I'm not going to tell you what it is because somebody will plagiarise it and I'm going to wait until it's in a certain public <laughs> Well, you know a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? <Hey. laughs> um, well, chaps, thank you both ever so much for this. 
Um, this has definitely been one of the more um, intense um, and discussions we've had on the Russian way of war of this series. So I'd like to thank, thank you both for your, for your time and joining me today um, and sharing your views um, about this. Um, Listener, I there will there will be very clearly a follow up. I, I think there are there are more dis, more discussions to come from this, and, and especially as, as things continue to develop. Chaps, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben.